Well, we are in chapter one of the book of Luke, and last week we looked at who Luke was and why he wrote his gospel and what he meant by an orderly narrative. Well, this week we, we are looking at where Luke actually begins his narrative, his gospel account with Zechariah, Elizabeth, and the foretelling and really promise of John the Baptist. So we're in Luke chapter one, picking out with verse five. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the people, for the Lord, a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer again. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word from your servant, Luke, who teaches us so much about what you have been doing throughout history to bring about the promise of the offspring to Eve, the Redeemer who would save the world. We thank you for this Redeemer because he is Jesus we thank you that we belong to him, that he knows us, and we know him, and we are in union with him. To that end, we pray again that your spirit would be among us as a people, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear this word, that it would penetrate deep into our hearts and our minds, our souls, and that we might have feet to follow you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verse 5 tells us that it was in the days of King Herod, and this is Herod the Great, much hated among the Jewish people, who was really a, a Roman 
uh, puppet king. And soon after, as we learn in Matthew, Herod would die. And his son, Archelaus, or Herod the Ethnarch, would rule in his place, though he never took the title of king. And so this kind of gets complicated because there was a lot of Herods <laughs> throughout this time. But this, this first one is, is Herod the Great. So the, the dates, this dates the events to roughly around 4 BC, a little bit before that time. So Luke begins with Zechariah and his, his wife Elizabeth, both of whom were Levites. And Zechariah, uh, a name he shared with the Old Testament prophet, means Yahweh has remembered again. And he was uh, a part of the sons of Aaron of the division of Abijah. And Elizabeth, or Elishaba, is how you would say that, his wife, she shared the same name as Aaron, the high priest's wife. And you can find that in Exodus chapter 6. So while Luke doesn't make any explicit connections between the Zechariah in our passage and the prophet uh, is Zechariah, it's interesting to note that they were both uh, tied to the temple. The prophet Zechariah ministered to the Jewish people who had returned to Jerusalem after the exile in Babylon, and he's one of the last prophets uh, in the Old Testament. And he prophesied about the restoration of the temple and the need for repentance among the people and, and the coming Messiah. So for example, the book of Zechariah looked forward explicitly to the triumphal entry of Jesus during his Passion Week. So that said, Luke tells us that Zechariah, who I think we have hints of from the, even the Old Testament prophet, and Elizabeth, his wife, both Levites, were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, this does not mean that they did not uh, have sin or that they were perfectly righteous. Sometimes Christians uh, in our times misread the Bible in saying that. No, no. The Mosaic Law provided ways for people to remain in faithful relationship with God. It's the sacrificial system. And so what Luke is saying is that Zechariah and Elizabeth were faithful, God-fearing Jewish people. Even so, they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both of them were past the child-rearing years. Now, if you're, you're a student of Scripture, you'll, you'll recognize this is not the first time we've seen this happen in Scripture. The pattern of the miraculous child born to aged parents or to a barren woman or both uh, is found perhaps most famously with Abraham and Sarah and their son Isaac. But we find the pattern again in Judges 13 with Manoah and his wife and their son Samson. We find the pattern again at 1 Samuel 1 with Elkanah and his wife Hannah and their son Samuel. And as we often mention, these patterns or types as they are called are found in the Old Testament not because Hebrew authors lacked the imagination to tell new and better stories or because they, they thought miraculous birth stories were really interesting and like telling those kind of stories, but rather because God is the author of history. He's the author of history and taught his people to pay attention to these miraculous patterns when they happen. So if you include the birth of Moses, a man also of the tribe of Levi, which was not a miraculous birth, but a miraculous deliverance by God through courageous women, what you see in each case is the birth of a son that marked a new beginning, 
a new mighty work of God in the history of redemption. And the pattern really marks one step closer to the fulfillment of the promise to Eve that one of her offspring would crush the head of the serpent. Here's how that works. Through Isaac, the promised son, God established Israel as the nation through whom the Messiah would come and God would save the world. Through Moses, God delivered Israel from Egypt, setting the pattern for salvation that would find its fulfillment in Jesus. Through Samson, a man dedicated as a Nazarite, though he, if you know the story, clearly rebelled against being a Nazarite or a Nazarene, God delivered Israel from her great and wicked enemy, the Philistines. Through Samuel, a child dedicated as a Nazarite as well, God raised up a priest, a prophet, and a judge who, who was the bridge to Israel's monarchy and the Davidic dynasty. Now, following in that same pattern, John the Baptist marks an important turning point in the history of the world. That's what Luke is after. This is not just some story. This is an important turning point in the history of the world, just as Moses was, just as Samuel was. He would be both the end of the Old Testament prophets and in turn the herald of the coming promised Messiah. And he too, like Samuel and Samson, was a Nazarene. So like Moses, John the Baptist was a Levite. And like Samuel, his origins lay in the temple. Like Moses and Samuel and Elijah, he would proclaim the word of the Lord powerfully. And of course, there is still an even greater birth story that comes after John, where instead of the spirit bringing life from the dead, which is the pattern of resurrection at work in all those stories, God through the spirit brings forth his son, the second Adam, from a virgin in an ever greater work of new creation. So while this is an extremely important pattern to notice in scripture, what often goes unnoticed by modern readers is that the barrenness of the, woman, of the women in all of these stories was really a source of shame for them. So in the case of Hannah, for example, Elkanah's other wife, Penina, harassed Hannah and mocked her over her barrenness. Now, of course, part of this, like what we see with Jacob and Rachel, another childless couple who would have uh, Joseph, the redeemer of Israel in Egypt, is that Elkanah favored Hannah over Penina. Even so, being childless was considered a mark of shame. It was considered a mark of shame. For example, in the case of Elizabeth in our own passage in verse 25, it tells us that despite being a righteous woman, people assumed that she was sinful or had done something to warrant God not giving her children. So it was never merely that these women were, were unable to have children. No, their barrenness was a constant source of suffering and shame for them. Well, we read in verse 8 that Zechariah, while serving on his shift in the temple, that the lot fell to him to burn incense in what was the holy place. The priesthood was divided into divisions, and those divisions in turn took shifts serving in the temple, somewhat like, somewhat like how you see you know, people serving in a firehouse or uh, in, a, in an ER or something like that where they work three days on and have three days off or something like that, only it was more like two weeks on and then more extended time off. So when Luke says that the lot fell to Zechariah to burn incense, essentially what happened was that a lottery of sorts, that's kind of how we would see it, was held to see whom God wanted to serve him 
offering sacrificial prayers in the holy place. So this was the area in the temple right outside of the Holy of Holies. So the Holy of, uh, of Holies is uh, where only the high priest could go you know, once a year, but the holy place right outside of the Holy of Holies is where a priest went daily to ensure the lampstand remained lit and to offer intercessory prayers for the people. So more than likely, this was the only time in Zechariah's life that he had the privilege of doing this. So this is a monumental moment in his life. This is kind of like the Super Bowl uh, uh, for, for Zechariah here. Now, the temple itself, as you well know, is an important place in Luke, let alone all the other Gospels and the Old Testament itself. The temple was the place where God met with his people. It was modeled, and you can see this, uh, Exodus 24 and following. It was modeled on the Garden of Eden, the first sanctuary created by God where heaven and earth came together and God met with humanity. Eden itself and, and the tabernacle and the temple that followed it was modeled on the pattern of heaven. So on earth as it is in heaven is not merely a phrase we say in the Lord's Prayer. It's the goal of redemption. It's God's work in restoring all of creation, including humanity, to the pattern that God intended for his creation from the beginning, as opposed to how it is currently disordered and distorted by sin. That's why all the sinful outworkings of, of humanity are in some way an attack or distortion on God's ordering of his creation. And you can, you can see a poignant example of this with how people, including Christians, treat marriage or gender or sexuality. Well, throughout Luke, Jesus will say that the temple, as important as, as it was, and by the way, he took it incredibly seriously, while the temple had become obsolete and was succeeded by Jesus himself, who is the new temple. In turn, by the outpouring of his spirit at Pentecost, the people of God became the temple of the Holy Spirit. And by 70 AD, we know what happened to that temple. That's why Jesus in Matthew 24 foretells the destruction of that temple. And it happens, of course, in 70 AD. So roughly, what, 65 years or so from this moment with Zechariah? the temple would be razed to the ground by the Romans, and that's okay, because a greater temple is here. So what we see with Zechariah, we, we've barely gone anywhere, right? So what we see with Zechariah is a righteous Levite offering prayers and incense to God on behalf of the people in the holy place for what is most likely the first and last time of his life to do this, as the people of God wait for him to come out and pronounce Aaron's benediction from number six over them. And you've heard this one before. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We use that one here from time to time. So it's in this moment, in this setting, in this moment, in the holy place that an angel of the Lord, Gabriel, appears to Zechariah, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And like with the prophet Daniel, God has heard the prayers of Zechariah and sent his servant Gabriel to him. Now, initially, Zechariah does not know that this is Gabriel. 
It is only in the face of Zechariah's lack of spiritual discernment, kind of akin to, to Abraham when he heard Sarah would bear a son, that Gabriel reveals his name and where he comes from. But in the meantime, much like Abraham, Zechariah is told that he and Elizabeth would have a son and his name would be John. John means Yahweh has been gracious. And this was borne out in his ministry of announcing the coming Messiah. Now Gabriel tells Zechariah that he and his wife would have joy and gladness because of their son. And many, not everyone, but many would rejoice at his birth and rightly so. I mean, this is a miracle child, but more so there would be joy because of what God would do through John and ultimately through Jesus. And Luke uses three different terms for joy here in, in verse 14 that link uh, with the Psalms that talk about the Exodus in just these same sorts of terms. So he's, he's linking, he's hinting at the joy associated with the first Exodus out of Egypt. So already Luke is hinting at, just hinting, he just kind of puts it out there, the greater Exodus in Jesus, a theme he will develop throughout his gospel. And Matthew does that too. Gabriel says that this child would be great before the Lord, which means he would enjoy God's presence and his favor, and in turn, he would be set apart as a Nazarite in service to God. And again, it's much like Samuel and Samson. And from the womb, he would be filled by the Spirit, and he would be a prophet in the same, same spirit as Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, living an ascetic life as a voice crying in the wilderness. Even so, as great as John would be, and he was pretty great, Luke subtly contrasts him here with Jesus so that when we get to chapter 1, verse 35, next week, Jesus, who is also a spirit-filled man, is great in the Lord because he is the Son of God. That is a order of magnitude different. It's reminiscent of John the Baptist's own saying in John 3.30, he must increase and I, that, that, that is, Jesus must uh, increase. I got that completely backwards. John must decrease, but Jesus must increase. And this ties John to then other Old Testament figures like, like Moses and Samson and David and Elijah and Elisha and Ezekiel, who were all spirit-filled men. But as important and great as John was, like the Old Testament men before him, he was merely the herald of the coming king. So John, like his father Zechariah and his service in the temple, represents the end of the Old Testament pattern that looked forward to and was being superseded by Jesus. Now, in verse 17, Gabriel quotes Malachi 4, 6 to describe the effect of this new Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And then he tacks on to that, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the second part of that description is what most Christians get for the most part. It's easy enough to understand. He's, John is like an advanced team preparing for the arrival of the king. So John's preaching would get people ready for Jesus, and many did repent and, and turn, to Jesus, turn to Jesus because of it. But by quoting Malachi, what Gabriel means by that first phrase, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, is that the fathers, Israel's leadership, and the children 
which were basically the Gentiles and the sinners of Israel, will have a great reversal. It'll be a great reversal. Israel's leadership in rejection of John, and then in turn Jesus, would be no better than the Gentile dogs and the wicked of Israel. And Jesus, you see, is, is the dividing line. He's, he's the measure of who is accounted as part of Israel. So in turn, the lost and the Gentile, those of, of low status, who were outside the kingdom, at least as Israel's leadership saw it, by receiving Jesus would inherit the wisdom of the just, as it says there in Malachi. And this is what happens. Just follow the Gospels. This is exactly what happens. I mean, after all, one of the Gospels was written by Matthew, a tax collector and traitor to his people who by receiving Jesus had become an inheritor of the wisdom of the just, and we Gentiles have benefited from it. So in other words, John's preaching, much like Jesus' preaching, would be divisive and turn things upside down. Now, much like Abraham's response to the promise of a son, Zechariah doesn't take the news well, or at least he doesn't see how this is possible. And it's at this point that Gabriel reveals who he is and where he comes from. That is, that he stands in the presence of God. Now, Gabriel is only mentioned twice in the Old Testament and twice here in, in the book of Luke. And both of those, those occurrences in the Old Testament happen in the book of Daniel. That's in chapter 8 and chapter 9. And in the first passage, that's chapter 8, Gabriel, who has the appearance of a man but strikes fear into Daniel's heart because he is a divine spiritual being, explains to him the meaning of Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat. And it's, it's not uncommon for angels to be sent by God to explain the meaning of visions or events. Now, a chapter later, while Daniel is interceding for the sins of his people at the hour of the sacrifice, which is exactly as Zechariah was doing in our passage, only Daniel was in Babylon and the temple at that time was in ruins, Gabriel was sent by God in that moment to answer Daniel's prayers. So Gabriel gives Daniel the vision of 70 weeks, telling him how long it would be until Israel was freed from Babylon and restored to the land, so roughly 70 years or, or so. And that vision left Daniel mute for a short time afterwards. In Luke, Gabriel reveals to Zechariah that Israel's salvation is close at hand, and unlike Daniel, Zechariah does not quite have the spiritual discernment to recognize what's being said to him, and he too is left mute as both a judgment but also as a sign. So while not every scholar is agreed, I think the 70 weeks of Daniel's vision and what we see here in Luke are actually related. I think they're related. As Jay McHugh argues, it's 70 weeks from this announcement to Zechariah in this moment to the presentation of Jesus in the temple in Luke chapter 2. And as Arthur Just argues, in both Daniel's vision and Luke's, Luke's encounter with, with Gabriel, 70 weeks brings an eschatological climax. That is, it's the long looked for and promised deliverance by God by the Messiah who will enter the temple to rebuild it. So the deliverance that Daniel was promised and never saw, he died in Babylon. The promise that was made to Daniel that would happen through the Messiah 
Zechariah is seeing it starting to come to fruition. So, Zechariah is left mute by Gabriel, and as he comes out to the people, he cannot proclaim the Lord's benediction over them, and they are shocked by this, and they, they figure out that perhaps he had a vision while in the holy place. And not long after, Elizabeth conceives, and for five months, she keeps her pregnancy hidden. So much like her husband's inability to speak, it's a picture of the mystery of God's plans that he keeps hidden until the time for revelation is ripe. And so Elizabeth reveals her pregnancy first to her much younger cousin, Mary. What Elizabeth says at the end of our chapter is reminiscent of what Rachel says in Genesis 30, 23. God has taken away my reproach. And it's a beautiful picture of the promise of the gospel for each of us, for each of us. So as I said last week, when Luke says he's giving an orderly account, you can see just how deep he wants to go in our understanding of what God has done in Jesus Christ and how the movement from Genesis 3 until the present moment has been worked out. So on the largest scale possible, Luke, like the Bible itself, wants us to rethink history. Rethink history and see the world differently. Jesus is the one through whom and for whom the world will be redeemed. He is the one working all things out for our good. But on the smallest scale possible, because it's possible to get lost in that cosmic view of redemption, on the smallest scale possible, God knew Elizabeth. He knew her and had not overlooked her or forgotten her and her suffering. And the Messiah was for her too. What I find so brilliant and so comedic, and I mean this in the best way possible, not like some cheap stand-up uh, comedian, are how God's plans are often hidden and involve the most unlikely, if not impossible people, like say, the youngest son of a shepherding family that would become the greatest king of Israel. And they're revealed at just the right time to bring about the most beautiful outcomes. And there's joy. There's joy. There's laughter. There's beauty in this. It is the great and deep comedy. And Shakespeare is a hack in comparison to our God. See, God's ways are not our ways. And he does not see things, let alone people, as we do. And so at the heart of the gospel is the restoration of life with God. And that's, that's already front and center in Luke. And life with God is, is what was lost in Eden. It's both what, what the tabernacle and the temple look forward to. It's what we enjoy now with God in part through the Spirit and with each other and what we'll enjoy fully in the new heavens and new earth when heaven and earth once again come together. This is why I love I love, I love the Lord's Supper. I love it. The Lord's Supper is such a beautiful and remarkable gift from God. Now, to outsiders, this looks like a lackluster, if not stupid, meal. Like, what are they doing? They think God is really at work in this? Though it's in plain sight. Plain sight. The redemption of the world is hidden from them. 
They can't see its beauty. They can't see its joy. In this meal, we see God's kindness and love of the world and how he seeks us out. You know, people of no consequence here. And how he has promised table fellowship with us and how he has atoned for our sins, how he has made us one spirit with him and with each other and how he has restored our humanity to us. So let's pray before taking up his invitation to come and eat. Heavenly Father, there is no God like you who has worked out all of history through your Son and the power of the Spirit to bring about the restoration of the world. And Lord, as big as that is, we know that your eye is on the sparrow and we know that your eye is on us, that you know us all, hearts, minds, soul, and body, and you've sought us out in your Son to give us life. Thank you for this grace and this mercy and this gospel. We pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.